Welcome. You're listening to Value Add with Lars Coburn, bringing conversations and reflections that add value to your life. Hey, podcasters. We're back adding value after a little bit of a spring break hiatus, and I'm really excited about this podcast in particular. I recorded this several months ago with one of the TAs from my classes at Fuller with Chap Clark, Drew Poppleton, a great guy, gives some great insights on what it means uh, to be an emotionally healthy spiritual leader and how to do some things, uh, learning together and listening to the Holy Spirit, group process kind of stuff. And we all know how group processes can go bad. So I know you'll be blessed. All right, we're here on the podcast, Value Add, um, conversations and reflections that add value to your life, and I'm here with Drew Poppleton. Um, so, Drew, we're sitting at, at Fuller Seminary, um, and so tell me a little bit about you, Drew, like uh, where, you're, where you're from and uh, how you came to Fuller. Yeah, well, originally from Pennsylvania, but uh, became a Christian in college and after that, ended up getting a job in West Michigan, of all places, moving from Pennsylvania to West Michigan. West Michigan is like the Bible Belt for Reformed people. Okay, okay. So I keep hearing about all these Reformed people from, from Michigan. Yes, uh, all the Dutch, lots of Dutch people settled okay, there. Okay. That's the reason there's a city called Holland. Um, so anyway, I got involved in the Reformed Church there, and uh, so that set me on a certain path where I ended up in a Reformed Seminary, and then I was... Uh, pastor in Indiana at a Reformed church for nine years, and uh, yeah, and in the the span of doing that work, ended up getting involved in a really cool movement that led me to a lot of questions about theology and leadership, and uh, ultimately I decided I needed to research a little bit more of those questions and become a little bit more educated, so... uh, I ended up uh, applying to some PhD programs and ended up here at Fuller. So that's the that was the super brief version. Yeah, of that, yeah. wow, that that is great. <laughs> I mean, you just capture it down in nuggets really quick there. Um, so so I'm a student at Fuller, obviously in the master's program. You're in the PhD program, mm-hmm. um, and we met at a, a class with with Chap Clark, who's yep. kind of the youth ministry guru, um, and and so I'm you know, been doing youth ministry for a while. Um, the class wasn't youth ministry related <laughs> though. No. Um, and, and as it, as it goes, but, um, so chap isn't your primary advisor, but you've, you're in the P, uh, the practical theology uh, side of things, right? Right. He's one of four professors who are, uh, involved in practical theology. Okay. Okay. So, um, I'm, I've done some stuff in practical theology now. Um, and, I get to hear from these guys like Chap, and he mm-hmm. make he kind of laughs about practical theology, like it's <laughs> almost like a joke. Um, so let's let's get your take on what practical theology is. Yeah, well, usually when I'm explaining it to somebody who has no idea even about uh, theology, I just try to clarify pretty quickly. It, it doesn't mean a whole bunch of the other theology is impractical. Mm. Um, it just mean, and, and then I try to take another step with them and say, <laughs> so part of what it does mean is you can hear in that word practical, the idea of practices, that uh, practical theology is about all the practices of the church. Uh, and that doesn't mean the practices of a congregation. That means the practices of Christians and the, where they be and how they be and 
uh, and all of that sort of thing. So partly about that theology. And then if they're able, <laughs> I try to explain to people uh, that the, the biggest thing about practical theology is that uh, it represents a shift over the last maybe like even just the last 50 years of thinking that um, anytime we did theology in, uh, at that practice level, it was usually applied theology. Like we take these ethereal mm. concepts of Trinity and incarnation and atonement and things like that, and we apply them on some practical level. Um, but things have changed so that we now understand that it's not just that we take those things and apply them. It's actually that theology takes place on the ground. Theology mm. takes place in your youth group. Theology takes place in your congregation. Uh, where people have experiences, and those experiences uh, and the way in which they behave, they, they all come out of theories and theology that they have, but that theology is combined with other theories having mm -hmm. to do with mm -hmm. the, the culture in which they live and all sorts of sociological influences and psychological influences, and all those things influence their behavior. And so practical theology became really its own field of saying this isn't just applying some theological concepts it's taking people in their own concrete experience and then saying can we do some critical reflection on whether or not we're living into the things we say we're living into mm. or um, that we're living into things that we might not even be aware of but to do that critical reflection on our present experience is really what practical theology is most about and that critical reflection requires resources from theology including the scriptures, tradition, different things like theological concepts from systematic theology like incarnation and all that stuff. But it also includes these other critical resources that are all those cultural things I was talking about, these secular disciplines of anthropology, psychology, sociology, all that stuff that helps us see ourselves more clearly. And if we can do that collective work really well of that critical reflection, then we can come back into our context and have a more faithful form of action. That's what practical theology is really about, is taking that concrete experience, doing that critical reflection, coming back into the setting with a more faithful act, form of action. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great um, great understanding of, of what Mark Branson calls the praxis theory praxis, sure. um, which is just kind of a little more geek term, uh, yep. geek terms, <laughs> for sure. Um, so, in... In the classes that I've just been taking, we've, we've dealt a lot with different practical theology methods or PT mm -hmm. methods, um, and you kind of almost described one there a little bit, um, yep. and there's there's different authors. I mean, uh, Richard Osmer has one mm -hmm. um, about kind of the oughts of what we ought to be doing, what mm -hmm. ought to be going on. Um, Mark Branson has kind of a loop one. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Chap Clark's, I think, is it now an arrow or something. But um, <laughs> so you know, you've been exposed to all these different PT methods, and I was just thinking, like, um, you know, that kind of is applying almost, um, you know, the way that we want to process, uh, we want a way to visualize what we're doing in this work and stuff. So. Um, how are how are you envisioning this PT kind of stuff working out? Is it um, is it something that you graph? Is it more a set of conversations? Because um, I, I know some of them are very linear and some are very secular. And uh, anyway, so talk to me a little bit about yeah. PT and and how you kind of see it shaping up now that you've been exposed to I don't know how many PT methods are. I only know really four, but right. 
Yeah, and they're all very similar, so if you know one, you kind of, in some ways, know them all. But um, I understand people's attempts to try and uh, lay out a process, uh, because I do think it's really important to do certain things before you do other things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Mark Branson, who you've been exposed to, he's really concerned that we don't access too many theological resources before we've done a really critical assessment of, of what we think we're doing and what we are actually doing in the moment. Right. Um, because we tend to use all these sort of pious justifications of where we're at and what we're mm -hmm. doing. Instead of just saying, no, oh, this is what we're actually doing and this is what the effect it's causing. Um, so I get the idea of putting things in an order. And uh, because of that, some people like to put it a graph and a little circle or a spiral or some linear thing. Um, and of course, all of those sorts of graphs or, or progressive movements in some ways um, are, are not a representation of reality, right? They're, yeah. uh, they're, they reduce, they're a reduction of what actually should be so within a community where it should be a dynamic process where we're entering in and out of different pieces that need to be done. So if we're trying to get a really concrete picture of uh, what's happening uh, and what we're doing, say, as a youth group and the way mm -hmm. in which we're helping the, the youth in that group cope with whatever influences them at the local high school or whatever they're doing, how they're uh, living out their faith in that place. Um, we might do some really great work around that and some really critical assessment of that and then start doing some theology and then realize, wait, we didn't realize this other piece that we needed to make sure we were accounting for here at the, at the high school level. Let's go back and let's do that. And, then, mm. and it's got to be dynamic and it's got to be, one thing I love about Marx is just listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying through all of it. Mm -hmm. So on some level, it should just be this sort of spiral, s dynamic <laughs> um, uh, not spiral dynamics is a whole nother thing, but um, but not just a circle, not just a line, but just this interactive process that mm. the people need to figure out. And and I say people because I am deeply convinced it needs to be a group of people. Practical theology is all about a group of people, not an individual trying to figure out um, you know their own practice. Yeah, um, yeah. So we're we're no longer the experts. Often, I, I find myself mm -hmm. studying about how I am mm -hmm. almost redundant as a, the paid youth guy, uh, and I'm I'm trying to get a group of people to see themselves as youth workers with me, and we're all you know um, mm -hmm. doing this together. But mm -hmm. it's hard when you know as a pastor, you're the one pay, taking the paycheck, and you've got the the hours to do that. Um, so yeah. we we we're fighting our systems, right? Exactly. Of how we. Uh, are set up and structured and all that. Um, so you've you've talked a lot about it being a group process, and that class that I took with with Chap was one of the only real classes here at Fuller that I've had to do an extensive group project and a group presentation mm -hmm. and everything. Uh, I'm sure there are other classes that I'd have to, but I just haven't been exposed to too many of them. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, and. Uh, I enjoyed our group project, but there was some there were some dynamics that were you know yep. difficult and stuff, and I think that was probably part of the learning. Um, so talk to me a little bit about because you did a whole presentation um, in our class about maybe before we can do PT, um, we kind of need to know how to. I, I think the question you posed was how will we be together? Uh, was mm. this kind of this pre uh, PT question? Yeah. Um, 
And I actually spent my whole class, uh, this last one on learning communities with Mark Branson, basically trying to create a, a, a practical theology of how we would discern practices of how to be together yeah. as a group. Because um, I, my previous experience in a church was was pretty nasty um, mm-hmm. from the interpersonal conflict and all that. So to, uh, talk a little bit about what do you mean by before we can do PT, we kind of need to know and answer this question, how will we be together? Yeah, well, part of that stems from my own study, and that all these guys that you've named, Osmer and Branson and um, Groom and others, Mm -hmm. you know, they put together these theories of the way people will actually work together, and they're just theories. When you actually get together with people, it gets messy, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you were talking about your experience in that class with Chap Clark and your group. That's the ultimate form of messy because we put you together in a group. You have like four weeks to figure something out. (laughs) You don't really know each other. Uh, You know, it's all kind of manufactured and it should be really messy. Uh, And hopefully there's some grace in the midst of that mess. Um, But so but when they put together these theories and it's like, well, we need to first thing we need to do is have a really accurate assessment of what's currently taking place. Mm -hmm. So back to the Mm -hmm. example with these kids at this high school. Well, we're going to figure out what's really taking place. What's happening in their minds as they try to get their minds around what it means to be a follower of Jesus, let alone a follower of Jesus in their high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's happening in their parents' minds? What's happening, you know, and you can sort of do some research into that and collect some data, but then something's going to happen, namely that there's going to be different interpretations of that data. There's going to be different interpretations of what you should even ask these kids and mm-hmm. what you should expect of them. Yeah. There's going to be different interpretations of what's happening at the high school and what happened 10 years ago. Does it still affect what's taking place in that high school? Because, you know, three girls died in a car, you know, right. whatever happened. So ultimately, every single pr- stage of the process is like what I just described, where people are going to have different interpretations, different ways of seeing things, different theological resources, different levels of intelligence, and it's just going to breed conflict. Group processes just breed conflict, and we can either do that conflict well, or we can do it poorly. So that's part of what I mean by how will we be together? How will we be together in the face of disagreement? Mm. What if we disagree about the role of parents in a high schooler's life? What if we disagree about what's actually taking place every day at that high school? What if we disagree about whether kids should be in the local Christian school or the local high school? What if we, you know, what if we disagree about all that stuff? And how are we going to be in the face of that disagreement? Um, that is one thing that I find that most practical theology methods just don't just don't take into account. Mm-hmm. And frankly, we've been talking on a pretty high level of uh, scholarship related to practical yeah. theology. Most people don't know these names, you know. Right, right. right. But... Um, but anybody can relate to sort of group process, mm-hmm. and that sometimes we get into groups and we have a goal of what that group is supposed to do. You know, maybe they're supposed to plan out the youth group activities for the year, and uh, but before they get into the actual process of planning, I think they should take on this question of how will we be together as we plan, because either <laughs> well one of a couple of things going to happen. They're going to either look to you as the expert in the room. Well, he's got all the ideas. He's been here the longest. We've only had kids in the youth group for yeah, a year, right. and he knows everything, so tell us your ideas, Lars. Yeah. Uh, so they just look to the expert, and they abdicate their own responsibility. Or some other people in the group will have really strong opinions. We need to take our kids to Tijuana, expose them to another culture, and do this ministry project, and blah, blah, blah. And 
um, and just really try to jam that idea across without anybody else even giving mm-hmm. their opinion. Um, yeah, so you can imagine all sorts of different scenarios, but what, what do you really want? I, I would think that what you want is that everybody would be able to fully express themselves about things that they believe to be true mm-hmm. and allow everybody else the same chance to express what they believe mm-hmm. to be true. That, so that I can define myself and let you define yourself. You can define yourself and let me define myself. And that way, the greatest amount of truth sort of comes out onto the table. The, and, and I'm not saying absolute truth. I'm saying everybody's version of what they think is the best. Mm. Uh, everybody's sort of truths. Um, and I'm not saying anything about relativism here. But when you get that right. all on the table, then your group can say, okay, now what are the, what are the best things? We can't do all of this. We mm-hmm. can't do it all. But... We, but at least we let's get it all out there. And then, also, how will we be together? Well, once you've seen all these ideas on the table, um, does one person just say, oh, I think that's the best idea, and we got to run with it, and why are you saying that stupid thing? And so then they start insulting the person mm-hmm. who's saying something. Um, or, you know, all sorts of group processes get really messy. Unless we go into it at the beginning and say, this is the way we're going to be together. We're going to choose that everybody should have a chance to define themselves because the spirit doesn't only speak through Lars or speak through Drew. It speaks through the whole group. And we mm-hmm. all only see in part. The only way we're going to see in full is if everybody gets a chance to speak. So that's one of the ways we're going to choose to be together. Another way we're going to choose to be together is we're going to choose to be authentic so that even if Lars is really pushing a, a certain idea, even though he's the youth pastor and we, some of us would maybe succumb to him being the expert and the paid guy in the room, <laughs> but everybody else thinks it's a stupid idea, other people have to be authentic about that because sometimes that's what happens in group process. Mm. Some person who's the expert gets their idea approved. Um, meanwhile, everybody else thought it was a bad idea from the get-go. Right. And then three months down the line, you're trying to do that idea and nobody's participating in it because they don't have ownership of it. Only the expert who decided it was a great idea has ownership right. of it. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. No, so um, I think the way you... you pose that is that in many ways as a group we need to you know become more mature that oh, that's yeah. like uh i think the way you put it was ever increasing emotional maturity or something right um along those lines so it's like in in many ways that's that's our hope for these groups uh, individuals within the groups but mm-hmm. also the group as a whole that we would continue to grow um in emotional maturity so uh let's see i mean I, I would just love for you to just say, what, what do you mean by emotional maturity? Um, and, and kind of, because I mean, I think yeah. you, you've talked a lot about how that might play out in right. the group, but um, a group is a group of individuals yeah. coming together. So, so what's the work that maybe individuals within the group have to do and, and, and then as the group as a whole to, um, to get to that emotional right. maturity? Yeah, so part of what I was talking about, how we be together... Um, what I was just talking about with all, were all these sort of agreements we'd, we would have, mm. uh, like a covenant. I think all groups should have a covenant at the beginning that says this is, this is the way we're agreeing to be together. And a covenant will look different for a group leadership, a group of leadership, than it will for like a small group, mm-hmm. um, whatever it happens to be. Um, but in addition to that covenant that I think needs to be in place, I also think there needs to be what you're talking about, this ever-increasing... Um, level of emotional maturity amongst each of the individual participants. And that'll take place in the group, but also apart from the group in a sort of spiritual formation or discipleship process, right? And what I mean by that is that 
people will increasingly be able to manage their own anxiety in the face of others. Mm. Okay, so, I mean, that's a huge one. Because anxiety is like, uh, I mean, it's subtle. It's not something mm-hmm. you, we name very often, right? right? We're already reacting to it immediately. So so how, how, do, we, how do we even know that we're growing in our anxiety. I mean, I, right. I'm probably asking questions before <laughs> that you can't even answer yet. But anyway, sorry, I just had to stop and go, oh, anxiety is huge. Oh, it's huge. And sometimes we feel it. Sometimes, you know, some people who might be listening to this be like, oh, I don't, I don't know. What, what is that? Well, I can really feel anxiety if I'm in a conversation mm-hmm. with my spouse or a significant other and they say something and all of a sudden I'm pissed off. And we feel that sense of like inner vibration right. or that sense of like, for everybody, it's different. Maybe it's uh, their palms start to sweat. Mm. Their heart rate, rate goes up. Uh, stomach starts to churn. So part of it is just making people aware that like when they're feeling things like that, mm-hmm. that's what it is. Their body is saying that like thinks there's a threat. Mm. And that's where, for me, the literature that helps differentiate between chronic anxiety and acute anxiety is really helpful. That acute anxieties, when there's a, a definite significant threat, usually it's real. Sometimes it's just perceived, but usually it's real. And it causes an anxious response that God's given to us so that we can protect ourselves. So if I'm driving along, I go through an intersection, somebody blows a red light, and I'm about to get in a car accident, that's the acute anxiety that gets all that adrenaline flowing, gets my heart rate up so that I can swerve out of the way, so I can jam on the brakes, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, and that's what I mean. There's a real threat. Sometimes it's just a perceived threat. Like we walk into a dark room and we hear a noise and we're like, uh, and it turns out when the lights come on, there's no real threat there. But the same thing, that acute anxiety, like our heart rate goes up and all this, these physiological reactions take place. The key is those physiological reactions take place so that we can respond instinctively without thinking. Mm. If we took the time to think when the car is about to nail us in the middle of the intersection, We'd be done. We don't want to think in that moment. Mm. So God gave us these capabilities. The problem is that that same sort of physiological reaction takes place with respect to chronic anxiety, where there's no threat at all, Mm. but these same anxious physiological responses like cue up, and what they do is that they prevent us from thinking. Mm. And in moments like we're in a room full of people who are making a really important decision about something, if I'm anxious because... You suggested an idea that not only do I not like, but I think it's going to hurt my family or something Mm. like that. All of a sudden, I'm feeling anxious. But uh, there's a couple things that happen. First, I stop thinking. My Mm. body's saying, there's a threat here, even though there's not really a legitimate threat. You're not going to harm me. Um, But it's like a future threat. It's a thought threat. It's a, you know. And so there's all these, there's this anxiety creeping up in me. And... um, it not only is it, does it uh, stop me from thinking really well, but that it engages these really automatic processes. So there's these four really automatic processes that when we're anxious that each of us do, some of us do one more than the other four, right? Mm. So one is conflict. So we all of a sudden feel like, well, I should say all four of these, their response, reactions we have, in the face of anxiety, to try and quell the anxiety. So one is conflict. Some of us just come right at the person, Mm. try to squell what they're saying, try to make everything black and white, win some argument, so that we can, like, 
the thing that's making us anxious, none of us like to be anxious, so this is going to help us be less anxious if I do conflict, point out how wrong you are, shut you down, and I'm right, everything's fine. Ah, I feel less anxious. That's not really how it works, though. It only makes us less anxious for a little while. It actually hurts all the relationships around us, Mm -hmm. and the anxiety comes back later. (laughs) The second one, the second one is distancing. That in the face of that same scenario, instead of coming at you, I shut down, and that shutdown can be either I leave the room, like I'm so mad at my spout, my wife, you know, when she's saying something, I have I leave the room. Well, that's just an anxious response. It doesn't actually solve anything, right? Except that it makes me less anxious for the next like minute. But after that, I still have to go face my wife. We still have to talk about the issue at hand. We still, like, it's just uh, brief. Uh, But uh, sometimes distancing happens without us actually leaving the room. Mm. So you're in the middle of a meeting, something gets said, and all of a sudden, Mary over there in the corner stops talking the rest of the meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not helpful because Mary's there at the meeting because we believe the Holy Spirit has something to say through Mary just as much as Lars and Drew. Right. Um, and then uh, the third one, um, projection. So we take the anxiety and we project it onto something else. Mm. So maybe I'm ticked at something you said, but there's Jason over there and he says something and I lash out at him. And we've all seen that happen in meetings where somebody right. lashes out at somebody. Where'd that come from? Well, they were anxious about something else. They projected it onto somebody else. Mm. Anybody who's a parent, we do that with our kids. We'll be anxious about something at work or with our spouse and then we'll project it right onto our kids or our poor kids. Um, they absorb it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's that's no good. And then the last one, overfunctioning, underfunctioning, meaning we get anxious about something that is or is not happening, mm-hmm. and we start to um, function on behalf of other people. So if we're in a meeting setting, we're anxious that not enough is getting accomplished, and we're half hour into the meeting, uh, oh, and yeah, so yeah. we start making decisions about everything. And it's like, no, sit with the process. We all need to have the conversation. You know, so you can see how anxiety about that would get the meeting going and cut off the actual process that needs to take place with the Holy Spirit. All that to say that there's these four responses, right? And you were asking about emotional maturity and how do we deal with that? And how do we, well, and I think part of it is managing that anxiety. So Mm -hmm. we need to have systems and structures in place in our congregations so that when we're doing spiritual formation, one of the things that we're mindful of is all of these responses and we begin to see our anxiety in motion at first all we can do is see it in the rear view mirror mm. see it in the past oh i got really anxious during that meeting but that that's a great first step just even right. raising awareness some people have no idea that that they've like done conflict or distancing or over functioning in a meeting and uh and it and it was not helpful for the group of people for the small group whatever they were in mm. um they're just not even mindful of it so a great first step is to be mindful of it and you can see it in the rear view mirror but then if you raise uh, people's consciousness of it enough, they start to see it in the moment. Mm. So then it's one thing to see it in the moment. It's another thing to be able to do something about it in the moment. Because right. I can see my anxiety with my wife <laughs> and still not want to do anything about it. Just yeah. want to yell. Um, and that's not going to be helpful, right? So then comes the, the final step is that self-regulation. I think self-regulation is a huge term that people should know. That if we want to be emotionally and spiritually mature... All of us need to develop some level of self-regulation, which means noticing anxiety that's creeping up, noticing my heart rate going up, noticing my palms getting sweaty, noticing that I feel like lashing out against you, noticing that, and choosing to do something different, which everybody has a different way of doing that, but it might be, I need to pray in this moment. It might need 
give me five seconds, I need to think about this differently. The best leaders I know, when they see anxiety creeping up in a meeting and they know everybody's gonna get stupid and do stupid things, they say, let's take a five minute break. Mm. Let's think about this differently. Um, see, these are all group process things that yeah. nobody ever mentions in this practical theology literature, right. but has to be done or that none of these things will get executed well. And it's hilarious. It sounds a lot like what my wife is teaching her four-year-olds in the ETK, you know? It's Amen. like, okay, use your words. Right. Um, <laughs> shoving doesn't help, you know? Um, what it, you know? So, yeah, it's it's something that maybe we, we think and we know kids need to to know about how to regulate their emotions and, right. and stuff going on, but we've just gotten better at hiding it um, underneath these four ways of, of reacting. Totally. Um, so definitely one of the things that has popped up in my own um, reflection on you know what's necessary uh, in answering that question, how we would be together yeah. before we can do PT, um, is really, I think, answered by a lot of what you're saying, but it, it kind of was summarized in listening for me. Like, mm. I just really feel like we need to listen yeah. um, to each other better. So in, in your, your talk, you talked a little bit about how there's a difference between uh, discussion and debate and even dialogue. And mm-hmm. so dialogue being the one that you're kind of setting forward that um, has, I think, some, uh, let's see, you put it, well, we understand through active listening, mm-hmm. uh, which is marked by active reflection and curious inquiry. Right. Um, and then through dialogue, we're also understood uh, by sh- humbly sharing our own perspectives. So it's like, it, it, to some degree, it's to be, to be understood, uh, to understand and to be understood is, right. is the goal of dialogue. Um, and you, you put some different ways that... Um, Dialogue is contrasted to debate. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just you know, so, so so in debate, I know everything versus dialogue. There's a lot I can learn. Mm-hmm. Um, debate, everyone needs to agree. Dialogue, it's it's okay to disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I think my favorite one is because I'm this kind of person. Like in debate, one person wins. Mm-hmm. Uh, in dialogue, everyone uh, can be edified. So. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of things in here. It's uh, debate. It's my way or the highway, uh, my way or your way, uh, right? And which is often I say, well, yeah, it's it's only yeah. my way. Right. Um, but in dialogue, every every perspective is valuable, which I think is is something we find attractive in our day and age now, where we're a little more um, open to kind of these different opinions mm-hmm. out there. And yet, I feel like, especially with the political um, things going on and within the church as well. Um, it feels like we're almost less interested in there being yeah. healthy dialogue. We might say that you can have your opinion and everything like that, but we really don't believe there might be a third way uh, together. Um, right. So that's and that's why I think it's good to sort of preface it by saying uh, there's there are places for debate. Mm. There are really great places for debate. I think it would be really great at this point, despite the political contention, to have a great debate on a college campus or in mm-hmm. front of a TV audience um, that was well-managed. Some of these are yeah, very yeah, poorly yeah. managed. But a debate about which policy is better and have it based on facts and not sort of ad hominem attacks. And, right. uh, there's places for debate. But what we're talking about is a lot of group process within Christian communities about how to be most faithful in our actions. And in that case, 
I think just dialogue's much more appropriate. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, with with dialogue, I think we um, we also want to get to that ultimate aim, ultimate thought that you're talking about about that God would reveal to us this complete, this more complete picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I yet I um, I struggle a little bit with how to listen to others in their ways of of. Uh, I guess sharing how God is speaking to them. Mm. So I just thought I would just pose this very, very tough question for you. Um, but how, how do you help people um, name the way that God is speaking to them? Basically, how do you help people articulate that they're hearing God yeah. and not just their own, the voice in their head? Um, yeah. Cause I, I guess I, I struggle with that. I'm, I'm right. from a fairly rational, uh, enlightenment <laughs> era church, and I've been I, I grew up um, going and, and being around a lot of Pentecostals and Charismatics, mm-hmm. and so their language codex, if you will, right. is just so radically different than mine. Yeah, and um, and at times I can be very judgmental and go, that just sounds like the voice in your head, right. <laughs> you know. Um, but at the same point, it's like I, I don't I don't feel like I want to limit the spirit to only the words printed on my, you know, red and black right. ink on my Bible, you know? Right. Um, so, so take that one a little bit. If our ultimate aim of dialogue is not just listening to, uh, each other well to be understood, but actually ultimately to, to understand mm-hmm. God. Yeah. How do we discern that that's actually God speaking through these people? Right. Right. Well, I, again, I think this goes back to discipleship so that it's um, a thing that's consistently taking place where people are, um, yeah, developing their own theology of what they believe about the way in which God speaks. Because I've had the same experiences you've had mm-hmm. in terms of encountering, right after I became a Christian, a Pentecostal guy who, I would just be in conversation with him, oh, you know what the Holy Spirit just said to me? And every time he said it, he would say it so often. I'd be like, yeah. I think your brain just sort of said that to you. I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, so I've yeah. wrestled with the, with the same stuff. But, um, yeah, one of the ways uh, is that just trying to teach people uh, the sort of theological framework of being humble about mm-hmm. the fact that we're human and we're not God. And we mm-hmm. don't have always the clearest access to God. And we can bring up tons of biblical examples about that. Right. Um, but that God does actually like influence our hearts and speak to us in ways that are concrete and more abstract. And, uh, and so we have to somehow combine that, but with some level of humility. And so earlier in our conversation, I talked about how uh, one of the ways that I want to be together with other people is that they can define themselves and that they'll let me define myself. Mm. Well, this comes back now, bring that piece back to what we're talking about right now uh, in terms of how people can speak what God has, what they feel is on their heart from God, right? right. Well, one of the ways that I believe that happens is to, to model and, and to ask other people to do what I'm about to say to you, which is to say, here's what I think, here's what I feel, here's what I believe, um, so somebody might say that, I, I believe we should do X mm-hmm. as a group, right? And to always follow it up with, that's what I believe, but what do you believe? So open it up to the fact that God doesn't speak strictly through me. So if I'm speaking with you, Lars, you know, here's what I believe. I believe that you should um, be with your family this Friday night. Even though you're thinking about doing that other thing, I really 
believe that. So I'm saying like some word of God from you for you. Um, <laughs> that, you got to work a, on your word right. of God. Um, <laughs> that no. might be a terrible example, <laughs> no, but okay. I'm saying something, right? Good. Uh, good. We should not do this thing Friday night. We both need to be with our families. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's what I believe. And then, and but then opening it up after I'm done mm. saying what I have to say, opening it up and saying, what do you believe about that? Having that level of humility. Mm. There are so many times people speak in groups where they just basically lay down their own edict of mm-hmm. here's what's so for me. Um, they confuse their opinion with fact a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and they rarely open it up to let somebody else say what they believe. Mm. So that's one piece of it for me. And then the other piece of the things you just said about when we're really listening well to somebody else, we want to make sure that the message that they meant to send is the message that we actually received. Mm-hmm. And the only way we'll know about that is through active listening. So I say, here's what I believe about X. And you say, you start to ask questions, mm-hmm. the active listening. You say, so are you saying that you mean this? And by reflecting back to me, then I can say, oh, no, I don't think I mean that. I mean this. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the ways that we correct the ways in which God may or may not be speaking to individuals is that when they say, I believe this, God has laid it on my heart that we should do this, we can say, so do you mean, and as we get them to clarify what they mean, mm-hmm. they not only clarify for us, but they clarify in their own head and heart what God's actually saying to them or not saying to them. And because it's a collective process, um, that's where I find the most security, when it becomes a collective process, where right. we're all collectively discerning, so it, doesn't, it isn't about one individual and that God speaks more to me than he does to you or whatever. Um, so that's a, another part of it is that active listening. And then another piece that you mentioned real briefly there was the, about inquiry, that after we've gotten real clear uh, about what message they're actually trying to send about what they believe, right. then asking this question, and where does that come from? Mm. So then they have to articulate out loud, well, I was just in prayer on the car on the way over or on the elevator on the way up and felt like God said it to me. Well, that's not a very legitimate, like, <laughs> uh, just this really brief interaction with God uh, versus if somebody was to say, if you're inquiring, well, tell me about where that belief comes from. And I could say, well, I was with, you know, these three other elders. We were praying and discerning about this and we were thinking really deeply about it. And then we, you know, went home and studied some things and came back and prayed some more. That They're making a stronger case for why they right. believe what they believe at that point. Um, or they can, they can say, five years ago we did this, and here's what happened because of that. And so now I'm feeling like things have shifted, and so we're here at this point, and the way in which God's been influencing this whole congregation the last year. So they're putting together a whole case as to why they believe what they believe. Yeah. Whereas most of the time in meetings and in, in the way in which we interact in groups, people articulate a thought, and then nobody follows up by clarifying, did you really mean what you said? Did I hear what you said the way you yeah. wanted it to be heard? And then nobody follows up to say, and where does that come where from? Where does that come from? And in many ways, it's like that's what practical theology is all about. Like we're trying to get really uh, real on what we're, where the information is that we're coming, where that um, those practices are formed, where right. those ideas are formed from. Uh, the second part of, of Branson's uh, mm-hmm. model is context and cultural yep. stuff. So what's what's been going on over the last you know centuries? Uh, decades, the people that are influencing that idea, maybe subconsciously in our mind. You know, we're we're so formed by the the water that we're swimming in. Exactly. You know, I was thinking about with that um, uh, inquiry stuff. My wife and I um, 
laugh about this, but our, our premarital counseling, um, the pastor who did that for us, he talked about the floor, and you may be familiar with the, the floor, but it, the idea is you, you uh, identify an object, and the object, um, you know, it could be the remote of a TV, mm-hmm. you know, whatever yeah. it would be, um, and you say, okay, you know, I need the floor. Right. And then you take that object, and mm-hmm. you, you say what you feel or believe mm-hmm. uh, to be going on. It could be, you know... I'm just so stressed out because you, you know, right. aren't keeping the house clean or whatever. I mean, yeah. that would probably be a terrible example. Yeah. But um, so then you hand the thing to the other person. Or I mean, sorry, you you keep the floor, and then the other person can only repeat back to you what you said. Right. They can't say anything else. They they have to just, in their own words, say back exactly what you said. They can't take the floor because they don't have the remote. Right. Yeah. And then when you're done, when you feel like you've gotten and they've heard you correctly because you, then you're supposed to correct whatever miss, you know, mm-hmm. and then you can move on to the next thing. Yes, that's right. And um, then when you're done, you're able to give the floor to them and then they can um, share yeah. back. And uh, I'll be honest, we have never actually taken a in serious, in a serious <laughs> argument, we've never taken the floor. Right. We've taken the floor as kind of a joke just to kind of do it. I mean, we had an assignment where we actually had to do it a couple times, but but there's just a sense in which that um, that idea is in the back of my mind whenever I have an argument with her. Right. Am I really articulating? And when I realize, sometimes we just have to take a breath because I realize it's just not getting through. Yeah. And, um, and that's causing more anxiety, more conflict, more distancing um, at times. So, yeah, I mean... It, if I think about PT, it's somewhat, it's like discerning how can we create little practices that people then, you know, maybe it's as silly as the floor in our meetings for the first month. Yeah. Um, and we just say, even if there's no conflict going on, we're going to, at the end of the meeting, you know, one person's going to take the floor or two people are mm-hmm. going to get a chance to have the floor. And we're going to do this back and forth about what we just talked about because we want to instill in our group and in us as individuals yeah. these habits so that when we actually do have conflict we have something to reach back for you know right um yeah and i hold a deep belief that yeah a whole congregation should figure out what are those those uh, practices we're going to do whether it's the floor or whatever how are we going to do all that stuff mm-hmm. and that that gets worked out in sort of a separate stream while the rest of the ministry is happening because we're mm-hmm. always doing practical theology in terms of what we've talked about of trying to make more faithful action. Right. We're always trying to take our worship services and be more faithful about that. Whatever ministries we've got operating, make them mm-hmm. more faithful. We're always trying to do that. There should just be this other separate stream that's other sets of practices that we're developing yeah. that helps people do all that ministry work better. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, yeah, and I think that's what, like, what you're saying is in some ways, these guys are, it's implicit in what their models mm-hmm. are that some of the things you would discern, some of the new faithful action would be these practices yep. that would help us do this stuff more faithfully. Right. But it's, it's, it's not explicit in right. their writings. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I appreciate your, your takes on stuff. Um, we've got way more to talk about, um, <laughs> so I'm hoping that you might come back on the podcast for another um, conversation at some point sure glad to yeah it'd be great um so drew just the final question would be how uh we've talked a lot about practical theology but i'll just pose this since the title of the podcast is is value add and and things that add value to your life so 
how has practical theology added value to your life? Mm. Yeah, gosh, I feel like I could just do a summary of what we just talked about. But, yeah, uh, but yeah maybe, maybe the biggest one is really getting present to the value of community. Mm. And um, I, I was brought up in a household that was not Christian household where um, it was either my dad's way or the highway. And, uh, and he's an expert, and, he, and frankly, he's an expert in a lot of things. He's mm. a national merit scholar going to oh, wow. college, uh, got his MBA at Harvard. He knows a lot. He's yeah. a very smart guy. He's got a lot of informed opinions um, that are, you know, quite frankly, entitled. And uh, so he's, yeah. But I came to adulthood thinking uh, really subconsciously the same sort of way. That, that I had a lot of informed opinions. Most of the people around me were wrong. I was going to tell them what was right. Uh, I was going to establish it. And, and I would never frame it that maliciously, but like mm. essentially that was true. Like I'm going to walk into places and, and, and here's the thing. A lot of people are looking for somebody like that because yeah, they true. don't feel confident. They don't feel, you know, whatever. And so they love a, a really commanding presence. Uh, a lot of people, not everybody, not everybody likes that, but, <laughs> but some people like that. But, um, but it's really, practical theology has helped me see just the inadequacy of that and recognize my own humility that needs to be present and the value of community in collective discernment mm-hmm. that we all only see in part. I only see in part. You only see in part. Um, you know, our ways are not God's ways. The whole Isaiah 55 yeah. um, thing is a huge theme for me. And that the way in which we see as a whole is that we have to bring out what every person sees. And when we can bring out what every person sees, then we have a better picture and, and the whole is greater than the sum of the parts kind of thing. And, and we discern things that when we do this really well, everybody walks out of the room surprised. Mm. When, when you come together and you're discerning something, so everybody walks out surprised because nobody could see the eventual solution the whole group came up with. So when I've put some of this stuff into practice, that's what I've experienced, is that that coming out of the room surprised and just being amazed. Like when we collectively listen to the Holy Spirit in this way, like good things happen. That's awesome. Well, Drew, thank you so much. And uh, blessings on your, your PhD. Um, what, where are you at in the process? You know, can we... Just plugging away at the dissertation, man. Okay, all right. Yeah. We'll be looking forward. Maybe we'll get you back on again before your dissertation is done and then maybe after hear about what your dissertation is on. Sweet. It'd be great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lars. Thanks for tuning in to Value Add. For more great conversations and insights, visit valueaddconversations.com.